Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, we've had about a week to digest the, the Democrats' plan for a presidential campaign season that would boot Iowa from the top of the calendar. It was last Friday that the rulemaking arm of the Democratic National Committee, the DNC, voted to approve a plan to make South Carolina, South Carolina instead of Iowa, well, it's the first state to hold a primary in this plan, followed by Nevada, New Hampshire, Georgia, and Michigan. Now, the proposal needs to be approved by a a full DNC meeting, and states will still need to set their own primary dates. But such a shakeup would strip Iowa of its first-in-the-nation status, a status it has held since the 1970s when Art Cullen was a young man, and so was I. Art Cullen, publisher and editor of the Storm Lake Times Pilot, joins me now. He won the Pulitzer Prize for editorial writing in 2017. Nice to have you back with us, Art. Well, thanks, Ben. It's great to be with you. You wrote an opinion piece this week where you acknowledge that President Biden's wish to put South Carolina first instead of Iowa is understandable. Let me quote a little bit of that to have before you comment. Biden owed Representative Jamie Clyburn, dean of South Carolina Democrats, for his seminal endorsement in 2020. Biden owes Iowa nothing, having placed fourth in the caucuses with a feeble effort. Iowa does not reflect a national does not reflect national demographics. The caucuses are not fully accessible. They are cumbersome and fraught with confusion. And then you write, we appreciate all that except for two predicates that the Beltway talkers repeat ad nauseum. Art, what are the two things in all this debate that you take issue with? Well, uh, first of all, that uh, uh, that we screwed up the results. Uh, what happened is the Democratic National Committee forced the Iowa Democratic Party to use a cell phone reporting app that crashed on caucus night and delayed reporting. And so the Iowa Democratic Party took a hit uh, for something that was forced on them by the DNC. And so that that deception is continually repeated that that Iowa screwed up the caucuses. Well, it it really was. <laughs> it was the democratic process worked. The cell phone app didn't. Second, uh, there's a suggestion that Iowa is too white. Obviously, Iowa is pretty is ninety percent white, uh, with the exception of Storm Lake, one of the most diverse places in the country, uh, uh, where a lot of Latinos. Uh, and Asians live. Uh, so anyway, we're too white, and there are a lot of implicit and explicit, actually, suggestions uh, by the talking heads that were racist, and uh, we aren't really. Yeah, and that really bugs me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think we need to call that out because uh, because we did elevate. Uh, Barack Obama, uh, you know, to the White House uh, in the Iowa caucuses. And uh, there was nothing racist about that. And Jesse Jackson ran strong in Iowa. And, uh, you know, and on the Republican side, Alan Keyes did all right. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a red herring. 
And, uh, you know, South Carolina is obviously has a much higher black population than Iowa. But it wasn't so long ago that they were flying the Dixie flag over the South Carolina capital. So who's racist? Uh, so, so you've read the the, the national all, all the all the writing that's been done since this happened last week, and there's a lot of I'll just say glee in some of the writing out there on a national level. What's what do you point to as as really behind the glee? I saw one headline: "Good riddance, good riddance, Iowa." Um, well, I think people have been cultured to believe uh, by the propaganda machine that. Uh, that we're hicks and uh, that we really can't sort this stuff out. And uh, uh, when, in fact, we took the field from 25 candidates down to about a half dozen, uh, and they were the strongest campaigns. Uh, And that is what Iowa's core function is, is not to be a kingmaker, but to be a veteran. And uh, so what's behind the glee is the big money – does not want a Jimmy Carter or a Barack Obama to unseat their machines. In the case of Obama, he threw a wrench into the gears of uh, the Clinton machine, and that was not appreciated. Al Gore hated Iowa, the Iowa caucuses. So uh, the big money uh, wants to be able to go into a bigger state and uh, with a flood of TV money and uh, and dictate the terms of the debate. That doesn't happen in Iowa and New Hampshire, and it drives uh, the political action money crazy, the big money that really controls our political system. That's why they want to get rid of Iowa, and that's what's behind the glee. Yeah. So, so what happens now, as I noted at the first, uh, you know, the states can set their own um, dates. Uh, Iowa can do that, and Iowa Democrats can stay with the Republicans there. What happens from from here on out uh, now with the, the Biden's order, as you say, that it shall be this way and not include Iowa in that top rung? Well, uh, former Iowa State Party Ch- Democratic Party Chairman Dave Nagel, uh, he's also a former congressman. Uh, I spoke with him just uh, a day or two ago, and, and he said... Uh, uh, call off the plans for the Iowa funeral. Uh, he's, he, he believes that the Iowa Democratic Party will uh, will go ahead and hold the caucuses first. Uh, and if that means that no candidates visit the state uh, or that our delegates aren't seated at the Democratic National Convention, big deal. We'll still go ahead and hold the caucuses first. That's what he, that's what he believes. And that was the sounds that the Iowa uh, State Central Committee was making. Uh, whether they stick by it or not remains to be seen, but uh, it, it appears they want to fight. How did New Hampshire, uh, also a small state uh, population-wise, uh, mostly white state, remain um, in, in the top tier there uh, simply because it's a, a primary, not a caucus? Well, yeah, uh, that and because, uh, honestly, because it's in the Boston TV market, and so it's easily accessible uh, to the big money and the campaigns. It's it's closer uh, for the campaigns. It's much more convenient than Iowa. And uh, they've got a, a, a much better connections in Washington than we do and much more effective advocates. Uh, Governor Sununu 
is obviously a much he's a, he's on TV constantly uh and uh, he might be running for president himself and he's plugged into the big uh republican money and uh through the bushes so uh you know uh, that's that's I mean, it's all about money and that's what it boils down to new hampshire will be successful because it has the money that's where the money wants it to be and the money does not want to be in Iowa, which is too unpredictable and uh, and too cold and and uh, and it's too much work. You actually have to get out of the, uh, of your car and go in and speak to people and answer questions. <laughs> All right. You address a very important larger issue at the end of your opinion piece on this uh, uh, this week. I, I wanted you to talk about that. You said, to, to quote your, your article, the Democratic brand is virtually unmarketable in rural America. Why? Why do you say that? Um, well, for things like this, that they say, well, you know, you may have problems. We really don't care. The hell with the Iowa caucuses. We're not interested in your point of view. Uh, I think that's that's really the theme writ large here is that we are in fact flyover country and people really don't care if there are uh, three meat packers in America that matter and uh, people really don't care if the Gulf of Mexico is dying from hypoxia because of our over fertilization of corn in in Iowa. And uh, people don't really care that there's half as many farmers as there were in 1972 when the caucuses took over, and that Sac City is half the town it used to be, uh, or Pocahontas. Uh, And, uh, you know, my graduating class uh, in 1975 at Storm Lake St. Mary's was 44 students. Now they're down to a dozen. Um, that's That's the story of Iowa. Um, and, uh, and they don't care. Uh, If they did care, we wouldn't have seen this long economic decline over the last half century. But you also point out in your article that the DNC abandons Iowa at their own peril. Yeah, because the people, uh, who, uh, you know, they showed up when Trump landed in Sioux City, uh, the evening before the midterm elections and they loved him. Uh, he showed up. The Democrats don't show up. There, there was no Democrat, Democratic organization of Latinos in Storm Lake for the midterms or the general election or the election before that, uh, because they've given up on Northwest Iowa. They've given up on the fourth congressional district. Um, what they fail to understand is if if you can raise that, you might always lose the fourth congressional district of Iowa. But if you can raise that percentage uh, of Democratic vote by two or three percent, you can win a statewide election. Statewide elections are determined in Western Iowa. And uh, that's something the Democratic Party doesn't get. They do not understand rural America. Art Cullen, publisher and editor of the Storm Lake Times Pilot. Art, always good to speak with you. Thank you for uh, the view uh, on this. uh, And you take care. Okay, well, thanks for having me, Ben. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Last week, we heard in our news, Congress forced itself between freight railroad companies and their unions. 
The measure imposed a contract on some 120,000 freight railroad workers. It preempted the first national rail stoppage in 30 years. And this came after three years of negotiations, mediation, and federal intervention under the Railway Labor Act. Uh, That's the federal law that governs railroad workers. The action, signed into law by President Biden, averted a national rail strike and a potential economic catastrophe. But what's in it for the rail workers? Well, it gives them a 24% raise over five years, delivers caps on health care premiums, and one additional personal day. But it failed to provide workers with a component they sought in a really big way, paid sick leave. Let's get reaction from Ross Gruders. Ross is co-chair of Railroad Workers United. That's a membership organization of railroad workers. Ross, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ben. Before we get into the agreement, um, a little bit more in detail, considering the substantial economic impact of a nationwide rail strike would have, did Congress and President the President do the right thing, you think, in heading this off? Well, the, the Congress and the President did the action that they uh, were allowed to do under the Railway Labor Act, as you said. Uh, the, the, but the big picture is, regardless of whether or not Congress intervened, we're all facing some of the effects, the economic effects and, and effects to our supply chain that railroads are, are causing in this country. And we see that reflected in inflation or in products that aren't able to get to, to the shelves or to market. Mm-hmm. And so what does that have to do with this negotiation, this mediation that's been going on for three years? I I understand it's important. You're, you're tying it to us, the consumers, but make that a, a little bit of a clearer connection with the supply chain problems we've been having. Well, the, the problem as I see it is that the railroads have changed their operating model to focus on the financial aspect of the business and at the detriment to all else. So ultimately, the freight railroads are national infrastructure, but they're being operated uh, like they're a financial tool to, to maximize profits. So these rail companies are making billions and billions of dollars, but they're not having to support the critical function that they do. How that ties to railroad workers is that uh, we're being squeezed in that just like uh, the effects that I'm talking about with consumers. Rail labor, just like all labor around the country, is being asked to do more work with fewer people, and it creates all kinds of problems in the workplace. It makes the workplace more unsafe, and uh, ultimately, it really prevents railroad workers from living lives outside of their their work as their schedules uh, are unpredictable and the railroads demand more. Ross, go into that a little bit more uh, in depth. What is it like to be a freight rail worker these days? Well, I'm in the operating crafts as a locomotive engineer, and so I work with a conductor, and most of us are on call uh, 24-7, 365 days a year. And the effects that uh, I really want to focus on are the effects on our, our families and our home life. Because we're on call and don't have predictable schedules, mm-hmm. it makes it really hard to be there for our loved ones. It makes it really hard to be there to care for 
um, our, our children and, and our families. Uh, and it makes it really hard to uh, focus on the, on the things that matter most, like, like your health. Um, when you're on call 24-7 and don't necessarily know when you're going to work and can't plan, the effects ripple throughout your entire life, as, as one might imagine. Is that something that has changed? Uh, you say rail workers have been squeezed in recent years. Is it the scheduling that's changed? Uh, what has changed? The freight railroads have adopted uh, a financialization model, I'll call it, uh, called precision scheduled railroading, which is, is really about austerity and cuts. Uh, it's, it's getting rid of as much as possible and cutting to the bone the operation to maximize profits. And so what that's meant is a huge reduction in the workforce. We've lost over 50,000 Union Railroad workers in a matter of about five years, and that has forced people to uh, respond to the phone more frequently uh, when the railroad calls. Mm-hmm. Um Let's talk about the negotiations. Give us some background and help us understand uh, what led up to this forced agreement by Congress and the president after three years of failed negotiations where Congress and the president felt felt the need to intervene. And as you mentioned earlier, the Railway Labor Act is, is kind of what precipitated the president's action, and it is what it is designed to do. It's designed to stop a work stoppage, whether that be a rail strike or a lockout. There were negotiations over over three years, and eventually uh, a presidential emergency board made some recommendations for the railroads and the unions to come together and get on the same page. Uh, Unfortunately, they still don't meet those quality of life needs we have as railroad workers and help us continue to live our, our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so elevated out of that became uh, paid sick leave, paid sick time for rail workers as sort of a, a place marker, if you will, for those quality of life things. It's, it's a step in the right direction. It's certainly not going to correct all the problems we have. Uh, I think a key piece of what's missing here is, the railroads have really uh, clamped down on, on disciplinary measures for people when they do take time off, if they're sick uh, or they need to make a doctor's appointment. Uh, they've instituted very, very harsh attendance policies that, that have led to people quitting the industry uh, or being terminated uh, in, in large numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, the House of Representatives voted on a resolution that would have given freight rail workers, seven days of paid sick leave. The uh, measures failed, though, in the Senate, as I understand it. Any surprises to you in the way Iowa's congressional delegation voted on this? No, I don't think there were any surprises. But normally when the the team that scores more points uh, wins, and the the vote was 52 for paid sick leave and 43 against paid sick leave in the Senate. Mm -hmm. Both both Senators Ernst and Grassley voted no on that sick leave. Let me just point that out. Go ahead. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, And, yeah, it normally, more votes would win, but of course there's the filibuster and it had to meet that that 60-vote threshold. Paid sick leave is enormously popular. And it's not just something that railroad workers need. It's something that all people need. Mm -hmm. 
So it's it's really hard when I hear that this uh, contract contained great wins. I think it keeps workers afloat in the industry and does sort of defer, like you're talking about, uh, things to the future. And and when it comes to President Biden, uh, the biggest weapon that workers have is withholding their labor. It is the power of a strike. And by preempting that strike, President Biden is, is taking that away from us. Mm-hmm. What I would say about that is that um, we, uh, if we're that important to the economy, we probably ought to think about how we're taking care of those workers to ensure that we're not seeing a further reduction in the workforce in the future and, and more struggles uh, to get things moving on the freight rail system. Yeah. Ross, we're hearing your opinion here. You are co-chair of Railroad Workers United, a membership organization of railroad workers, not a union. Uh, we're hearing your opinion, but w- what are you hearing, perhaps a broader spectrum of reaction from rail workers you have contact with? Is there a range of opinions here? There's certainly a range of uh, opinions um, I think a lot of people uh, that I work with are happy to see this this process behind them, but the the conditions that we work under are not changing. They're not going to uh, magically get better and, unless we struggle to make them better. I, I think the biggest thing to take away from this this whole process is that at the end of the day, railway railroad workers knew uh, what we worked under. We work under the RLA. So we, we knew this contract would be imposed upon us at some point. We just didn't know when that would be and under what conditions. And now we know that and can go back to work uh, trying to struggle for, for what it is we need for ourselves, our families, and for keeping uh, the freight railroads running. Yeah. Ross, as we wrap up this conversation, what does this precedent mean for many future negotiations? Will an actual threat of strike be taken seriously after this? What I would say is that if we want to achieve a different result as as railroad workers or as workers in our workplaces, we need to think about what we need to do to make that happen. And we were unsuccessful, I would say, this time around in in achieving what we wanted. So uh, we need to go uh, back to the drawing board and think about what it is we do differently. All right. Thank you very much. Ross Gruders of Pleasant Hill, Iowa, locomotive engineer and co-chair of Railroad Workers United. Ross, thanks for your view on this. Appreciate it, Dan. Coming up after a short break, uh, Zachary Oren-Smith with an update on that Marengo biofuel plant explosion caused an evacuation. Also an important deadline next week for the for ACA coverage. Pete Damiano uh, will explain that. Also the financial plight of rural hospitals and mixed reviews on a new designation that's meant to help rural hospitals. Natalie Krebs will be along. It's your News Buzz edition of River to River. I'm Ben Kiefer. Back in just a moment. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com.
It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Yesterday morning, you heard in our news an explosion resulting in a fire, multiple injuries at a biofuel plant in the eastern Iowa community of Marengo. Let's get a quick update from Zachary Oren-Smith, our eastern Iowa reporter here at IPR. Hi, Zach. What's good, Ben? How are you? I'm fine. So tell us what happened. Yeah, so around 11.20 a.m. yesterday, Thursday, uh, the C60 biofuel plant, there was an explosion, right? There were 30, approximately 30 people on site. Um, when emergency uh, first responders showed up to the site, uh, they were able to get everyone out of the, everyone accounted for in the building. Um, they estimated initially a dozen uh, injured folks. Uh, five were taken to the Iowa University of Iowa hospitals and clinics for treatment. Um, one of the uh, one of the first responders said it was something you know everything from sort of minor smoke inhalation um, issues to more serious injuries. Okay, we hope uh, the best uh, for those injured in this. I understand Maringo also needed to be evacuated. That's right. Right as uh, right as um, uh, first responders got to work uh, putting out the flames, you had uh, you had uh, officials going from house to house trying to evacuate folks that were in the smoke screen. I mean, the, you could see some of the smoke from miles away. Zach, when a small community, this in this case Maringo, has a, a larger issue here, an emergency issue, d- does that community have the have the resources to handle it? You know, in general, most uh, most fire departments, most emergency professionals are ready for the call, right? these calls, right? Um, for a big incident like this, um, you know, it was really important to have many agencies responding, many fire departments, many law enforcement offices, um, you know, all kind of coalescing together. I spoke a little bit with uh, State Patrol Trooper Bob Conrad on the scene who was explaining uh, kind of uh, what, uh, why that's so important. You know, you have resources in a town like Marengo that are sufficient for 99% of, of the concerns. But when we do have a larger event like this, having those surrounding communities, having that that surrounding uh, uh, help to come in and and combat a fire that is that is not typical is just paramount. So what are the unanswered questions? Uh, tell us more about this is the C60 plant, this biofuels. Tell us more about it. So uh, State Patrol uh, was uh, was on site answering questions to reporters. Um, and they'd said that the fire marshal was on site, uh, you know, b- beginning the investigation. Obviously, we're still early days talking about what the um, kind of outcome of this investigation was, what the call, those causes are. Um, but they're currently under investigation. Mm-hmm. So this was a, a shakeup for the, the residents of Marengo because I see um, in just a, a, let's see, this is a the Iowa County Sheriff's Office posted this. Anyone evacuated due to the fire can go to the Iowa County Transportation Building. Please stay indoors. Otherwise, a large fire is being fought. And then in all caps, please no sightseeing. I'm from a small town, so like I relate to the drive to go see the fire that you heard about in the news. Yes. It's like it feels very human. It feels very normal. However, right in these instances, right that can that can be kind of dangerous. It draws uh, personnel away from fighting the fire, away from evacuating folks. You have people that just have to hold the perimeter because you have you know folks trying to get a look at the blaze. Okay, thanks for the update. An explosion yesterday, Thursday in the eastern Iowa community of Marengo. Zachary Oren Smith, thank you for the update. Thanks, Ben. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's your last chance for coverage that starts January 1st. I'm talking about ACA health care. If you're one of 35 million people enrolled in health insurance coverage through the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, December 15th, uh, that's what I'm seeing online. Perhaps you're seeing it in ads as well. An important deadline to remember. 
a final date you can file for 2023 coverage in order to be effective on January 1st. Let's get some explanation about this deadline, plus much more, I'm sure. Pete Damiano is with us, director of the University of Iowa Public Policy Center. Hi again, Pete. (laughs) Hi, Ben. So uh, the ACA providing comprehensive health care insurance plans for those not eligible for options through employer-provided plans. What about this deadline? Fill it out for us. So just like with often with employer-based insurance, there's an open enrollment period to try to reduce the amount of people who are inappropriately trying to apply for insurance only when they need it and not you know, when they don't. So with the Affordable Care Act, and this is the health insurance marketplace, which is private health insurance that's subsidized by the government, uh, the open enrollment period started November 1st, runs through December 15th, as you mentioned, for people who want to get coverage starting January 1st. There's also, and it's been extended one month to January 15th if people want to start on February 1st. And so this is a great opportunity for people who either don't have, you know, they're uninsured, they don't have health insurance, or they're feeling locked in to the situation they are. And I think of this, you know, the sort of that job lock for my benefits. Mm-hmm. Now here's a chance that you actually can get some subsidized health insurance to be able to do what you want to do and move to a different job or do something that's, you know, more entrepreneurial or, you know, better for your quality of life. Sort of un- untethered from your workplace, you get you get uh, health care coverage here. Correct. Specifically for Iowans, what, what plans are available? So in Iowa, there's four different companies that are offering health insurance through the health insurance marketplace. And this is all regulated by the state Health in, the, through the insurance commissioner's office. Uh, there's two that are statewide. One is Wellmark, which most people are very familiar with. The other is Medica, which is out of uh, the Minneapolis area. Both of those have statewide coverage. And then there's two companies that are offered in a more limited way, a company called Oscar, uh, which is they've offered for I think this is either their second or third year in 25 different counties this time. has expanded from five in the past. And then a, a new one to me, at least, and I believe it's new this year, it's called Care Source. Uh, that's in Dallas, Madison, Polk, or Warren County. So you go to the healthcare.gov website and you start, you can either put in your information and actually, you know, start enrolling. You don't, it doesn't, mandate that you do anything, or if you just want to explore and sort of see what's there, you can do it. And then based on your county, different plans will come up and you can sort of see if that's you know something that you might be interested in. Yeah, we're trying to reach those who would really benefit from this, who are missing out. Do we know how many Americans, how many Iowans are missing out? We know, you know, this has been bathed in very toxic politics for a long time, right? Yes, unfortunately, because <laughs> this is obviously so important to people's livelihoods. Um, we know that there's roughly 25 to 30 million people in the United States who are still uninsured. Many of those people would qualify for either the subsidy that you get through the health insurance marketplace or for Medicaid or the Children's Health Insurance Program. And if you go through this portal, if you will, the healthcare.gov website, it will take you and tell you based on what you put in is your income, whether you're eligible for Medicaid, whether you're eligible for the private insurance, and then what level of a subsidy. And when you go to that site, then it's going to start walking you through here the different levels of insurance. There's something called this bronze, silver, gold, which can can be confusing, but the silver is really something that's very similar to the health and to what you'd get as an employer-based insurance. And and those different levels have differences in terms of what the monthly premium is going to be, what the coverage is going to be, and then also uh, what your out-of-pocket pocket costs are going to be. Mm-hmm. For those who, who do not or have not signed up thus far, do we know why? Is there sort of studies about that and, and what 
what best encourages people to do what's in their own self-interest. It's it's hard to argue with that. It, it is. I, I don't think there's any one answer really. Be, you know, there's lots of different reasons for you know. For one, obviously, as you mentioned, the politics was so strong early on with this that there were people that just still maybe are reticent to believe that this is something that would be beneficial to them. Other people, they just don't know about it. And they're, you know, they're not as aware or they're not sure how to do it. And there's some really good ways for people to access this if they want to find out how to start. And like I said, you can just go to the healthcare.gov site, but there are also what are called um, health insurance navigators. And there's some sites where you can find out where they are. There's one called localhelp.healthcare.gov, so it's a part of that site. There's another one called acanavigator.com, and that is an official government-funded site. You can also go to your health insurance agents, or go to insurance agents, go to a Farm Bureau office, oh, really? and talk to them about it, uh, and you know see what the options are in your area and see if it might be something that's good for you. One other thing I really strongly suggest looking at is also what the provider network that's associated with any of these plans. Because if you, especially if you have a provider, healthcare provider of whatever type or a hospital that you really want to make sure is in, you've got to make sure whatever the plan is covers that so that you didn't, you know, you're spending your money wisely. Mm-hmm. And, and I see that um, the enrollment for the ACA nationwide hit a record high, 35 million this past April. Has that been right. a sort of a steady climb, becoming more popular with every year? It, it has. And we know that it sort of flipped almost around 2017, 2018 in terms of people's attitudes about it. And now we've been seeing that a lot of states that, for example, with the Medicaid expansion, which is a state-by-state acceptance, that's now spreading through what you might think of as the red states that were originally reluctant to do it. For example, South Dakota just did a referendum, and they're going to start the two. The people are asking to have the Medicaid expansion uh, now instituted, so that people up to 135 percent of coverage will now, especially single adults, will now have, be eligible for some coverage. Yeah, and you see that that trend among states that aren't on board yet continuing. Well, I hope so. The two big ones that are left are Texas and Florida, and they're literally leaving billions of dollars on the table and millions of people uninsured if they would accept it. And 90 plus percent of the money would be coming from the federal government. So it's really in their best interest to do this. And it helps people with insurance because it reduces the uncompensated care. So that reduces the the burden for everyone. So it's it's not just sort of helping those people. It really helps everyone in the state. Yeah. So the, the final message in a nutshell, if you uh, or a loved one or a friend need to find out more, healthcare.gov. Navigate that and uh, get all the benefits that are due you under the ACA if you don't have employer-based uh, health care coverage, right? Absolutely. Or even go to a local agent and ask around or go to the state health insurance. It's not health, but there's state insurance commissioner's office and either their website or call them and they can help you. The director of the University of Iowa Public Policy Center, always good to have you explain this uh, very important health care aspect of our lives. Pete Damiano, take care. Thank you, Ben. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. In the past decade, more than 130 rural hospitals have closed, and many that are still open are in really dire straits. The pandemic has added to financial challenges for rural hospitals, and so it could get worse. 
IPR's Natalie Krebs has been reporting on this issue. Her reporting comes from a collaboration between IPR, Side Effects Public Media, and the Midwest Newsroom. Natalie, welcome. Hi, Ben. Start by describing the headwinds that uh, rural hospitals have been facing that predate the pandemic. So it's it's nothing new that rural hospitals have faced challenges for decades. Um, We saw a lot of them close in the 1980s. It's continued for the last couple of decades. I mean, overall, we're seeing declining populations in rural areas. That means less business for rural hospitals, um, as well as growing costs. And with that comes what a lot of them say are, you know, reimbursement rates from Medicaid, Medicare, and insurance companies that haven't increased, haven't kept pace really with the cost of things going on. So you have less patients going to these hospitals, less reimbursement rates. Um, they've A lot of rural hospitals have really been struggling for a long time, even before the pandemic. For this recent piece, you visited the Crawford County Memorial Hospital in western Iowa. Why did you visit this hospital? What did you want to investigate here? Yeah, I visited this particular hospital because, you know, it is a very typical rural hospital in Iowa. You know, Iowa has many, many rural hospitals, many, many critical access hospitals that are limited to just 25 inpatient beds. Crawford County Memorial is in in Denison. Denison happens to be fairly far from any urban area. Um, it's, It's sitting there right in between Des Moines, Sioux City, and Omaha. Um, and so they've been experiencing a lot of challenges that are not unique to Crawford County Memorial. You know, they're seeing staffing shortages from COVID burnout. They're having issues with these reimbursement rates um, to balance their books. Uh, and then, you know, on top of that, they just in, in general are just struggling. Yeah. Are they at risk of, of closing? Did you get that sense? They are not at risk of closing. They're actually doing better than other hospitals, I would say. They're actually operating in the black. A lot of rural hospitals are operating in the red. Um, that said, you know, I spoke to their CEO and their CFO, and, you know, they're, they're just very concerned dealing with issues of inflation and everything else I mentioned before. Yeah. Now, you pointed out in your reporting that uh, lawmakers are holding up some new federal uh, a federal designation, I guess, is the term used here, as a possible lifeline for rural hospitals. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is the Rural Emergency Hospital designation. This is the first new licensure designation the federal government has created since the 90s. Lawmakers approved it in late 2020. We just saw the rules the from CMS come along just last month. And this basically is a response to all these struggling rural hospitals, something that was spearheaded by Senator Chuck Grassley. And it would basically allow them, it would have them end all inpatient services and then basically just operate as an emergency room without patient services in exchange for increased payments, increased support from the federal government. Mm, Okay, but uh, it's having mixed reviews, right? Uh, So what are the pros and cons? The biggest controversy of this, obviously, is ending that inpatient care. And using Crawford County as an example, um, talking to their CEO, she said it accounts for only 10% of their services, but they find that to be really important. 
The big ex- example of that is that Crawford County Memorial still delivers babies. A lot of rural hospitals have stopped delivering babies over the years. It's, it's an expensive service. It it loses money in rural areas typically just because you don't have that volume of babies to offset the cost of what it what it costs to deliver babies. So that is the biggest point to this rural emergency hospital thing is is ending those inpatient care services. And a lot of hospitals push back against that. You know, they're saying, we can't possibly do that. This is so important to our community to have these services. Mm. So the sense here is uh, what, that uh, some rural hospitals will adopt this federal designation and some others not? Right. And this federal designation ultimately for hospitals that are struggling the most, Um the ones that are really on the brink of closure. The idea behind this is that, you know, having a a hospital convert to just being an emergency room with outpatient services is much better than having no hospital at all. So it is expected some hospitals in the Midwest area have already expressed interest, say they plan to convert to a rural emergency hospital. Um, Blessing Help Keokuk, you might remember, was the, the hospital that closed in Iowa recently in October. I spoke to their administration. They said they planned to convert to a rural emergency hospital. Uh, that was in their plans to save that hospital. Unfortunately, federal rules didn't come fast enough, and they just they said they had to close it. So we are going to see hospitals use this designation. We've just seen some pushback against it as well. Okay, Natalie Krebs, IPR health reporter. Thanks, Natalie. Thanks, Ben. And we've come to the end of this News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News on this December 9th, uh, Monday, here on River to River, a tale of survival you'll want to hear about. I'll talk with Karen Zebarth of Adel, Iowa. She's the author of Two Tales, A Hiker's Story of Survival and His Mother's Story of Hope. Oh, it's such a nice book. She recounts how her son was the subject of a search and rescue operation when he and a fellow hiker became lost in the mountains in bitter weather. Her son joins us as well on Monday to recount those five days in the wilderness that he thought, um, well, he might not survive. And hey, there's a way to explore new terrain and not risk your life, new musical terrain, that is. Tune into IPR Studio One. Cece Mitchell joins me now, of course, to groove into the weekend. Hi, Cece. Hey, Ben. That was a good transition. <laughs> we try. You've got a couple of <laughs> tunes for us. What's first? Uh, what's up first? So the first track is by Phoebe Bridgers. Uh, she's kind of a melancholic singer, but she draws a really big crowd. We saw that at this year's Hinterland Music Festival this past summer. And so she, I, she's pretty popular, and I like her a lot. Every year since 2017, she's released a new, like, kind of in her style, kind of that somber style Christmas cover for the holiday season. And so this year, she's covered the track So Much Wine. It's by the Handsome Family Band. And I think it's a must listen for indie music fans this holiday season. So this is Phoebe Bridgers with her take on So Much Wine. Listen to me, Bye. 
Phoebe Bridgers uh, with her take on so much wine. I love that, uh, Cece. Mellows me out very nicely. (laughs) What else do you have for us today? One more we have time for. Yep. The next track is by French pop band Phoenix. They've released a lot of good music over the years, and I'm really excited that we've got a new album from the band. It's their seventh album called Alpha Zulu. So the song that I've picked out to show you today is really upbeat, but it still maintains this kind of cool attitude at the same time. So I think it's perfect for grooving into the weekend. This is Phoenix with their track After Midnight. Okay, wonderful. We'll go out with Phoenix After Midnight, the title of that tune by Phoenix. Uh, before we do, CC, remind us, how can we tune into IPR Studio One? Studio One Tracks is on six nights a week at 7 p.m., 7 to 10 p.m. And then we also have Studio One All Access on Saturdays at 1 p.m. and Sundays at 7 Okay, indie rock, singer-songwriters, blues, local, regional music, and we have it all at IPR Studio One. Cece, thanks so much. You take care. Thanks, Ben. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. River to River today, produced by Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Take care and have a wonderful weekend.